Well, good morning, chaps. We are back for the endurance podcast number. I don't know if you know what number it is. Does anybody know what number, number it is? What are we up to? We are up to 34. 34? God, I, I didn't think we'd be as, as high as 34. Yeah. Should be far more informed than that, shouldn't I? I mean, to be fair, we, we have been a bit sporadic with our podcasts, and I'm largely going to blame myself for that. You know, I wouldn't want to point the finger or blame anywhere else. So it is good to be back and and we're now going to make a regular effort aren't we to stay on track and get our podcasts back regular over the winter so yeah so good morning it's good to speak to you both what is the weather like where you are mike we've got nice sunshine lovely sunshine down here i'm being blinded on one side of my face in fact so um hope it lasts for a few days yeah uh ian what's it like where you are yeah, same here in sunny Birmingham, sun shining. Yeah. Lovely October day. I've got a hat trick because it's sun. It's always sunny in Wigan, you know that. But it's sunny here as well. So we have got a hat trick. It's an absolute beautiful day. It's one of those days where you just want to get out and go for a trail run or something, isn't it, really, rather than uh, be stuck indoors. But yes, beautiful, beautiful autumn day. Perfect day to celebrate the return of the podcast. Now, it has been quite a while since we've done the podcast. So, of course... There have been many things happening and there's many things we can recap on. Probably too many to fit into one podcast. Mike, where do you want to start first? Well, are we going to start traditionally with Tweets of the Week? Oh, yeah, Tweets of the Week. I forgot about that. Yeah, Tweets of the Week. We should do, I guess. Um, uh, who's going to go first? Uh, Ian, have you got any interesting tweets? Have you Have you got them lined up or are you just scrambling for your mobile phone now as we speak i'm just just scrambling now i've got two so give me give me one minute and i'll have a third mike have you got yours lined up well i have but not because i was prepared but because we're having those uh issues all joining the call earlier so i just managed to scroll through my phone quickly yeah right you know what uh well you can go for people i don't know what tweets of the week is it's just an utterly pointless episode where We've got to recap our favourite three tweets that we've done recently, but you've got to do it in exactly one minute or as close to one minute. And the person who's closest to one minute wins the prize. Well, no, there is no prize, really. It's just pride, I would say. Just pride and the satisfaction in knowing you were the best on the day. Um, so if you're ready, Mike, you can go first today. And I will time you while Ian is scrabbling to look at his mobile phone. I've got mine. So cover that little uh, clock that's ticking in the top of your Skype window, Mike, because we we both know that you're um that you cheat sometimes. You must do because it's too good. To so normally, you. if I prepare them and aim in for the sixty seconds, I've got a sneaky feeling I'm actually going to be way inside today. Okay, okay. Is your watch and your clock and your everything covered? Everything no covered. Cheating. Everything covered. Okay, we're not tweets of the week, go. No. Okay, I'm going to count you in. Are you ready? Three, yes. two, one go cool the first one is a tweet i shared this morning just reinforcing the benefit of consolidation weeks in your training or rehab you don't always have to be doing more or harder or faster week on week to get better then i shared a little video yesterday um about a question i was asked how long should someone recover from a marathon and my answer was very much it depends it depends how hard you raced it depends if how you gauge recovery are you trying to recover for light training for heavy training or to race again because all of those things will give you a different answer and then my final tweet of the week is a study i shared uh, which is a couple of years old now but i shared it this week about does running help you live longer and this big study found that during a five and a half to 35 year study there was significant chances of lowering all-cause mortality cardiovascular and cancer deaths compared to non-runners. It's my tweets of the week. You muted yourself there, Mark. You muted yourself, Mark. You have to unmute yourself. Sorry. Oh, unmute yourself. Right. I'm sorry, but there is no way that you're not looking at the clock. <laughs> I'm not looking at the clock. I was looking down. It's just... Well, this is this is becoming too coincidental now, Mike, and it's becoming too regular a thing for you to be this good at predicting it. So when I looked, and to be honest, I, I'm I'm kind of I'm not I wasn't absolutely bang on it, but when I looked at your start point, 
it, on my my clock it said three minutes and 15 seconds and you finished on four minutes and 14 seconds so that is 59 seconds so I'm not really sure there's any point in me already and having a go now <laughs> unless Ian think his confidence is going to get bang on 60 I'm, I'm, no, sure, I'm not, com- not I'm confident sure I'm, at all I can get the wife to vouch that I'm very good for a minute and then I tend to drift off so yeah. <laughs> just it's a, it's a life skill I've practiced for a long time <laughs> Uh, Ian, you can go next. And, yeah, uh, I'll, my, just, my... I'll talk for ten minutes about my favourite tweets because I'm not going to beat him, am I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll leave you in, in Mike's capable hands. Okay. No right. Three, two, one, go. Okay. First amount, something that's probably relevant to something we'll talk about later, which is uh, Kona uh, and Gustav Eden's shoes uh, and the high stack height. And the fact I put a tweet out from World Triathlon confirming that there's no rules around stack height, which uh, obviously uh, generated a lot of debate. Second of mine was also a corner, um, was Chris Nikic, um, who's first person with Down syndrome to finish corner, which is an amazing story. I uh, put a couple of tweets out about that, but I think that was the first one that I put out. Uh, and then my last one was uh, a study uh, relating to physical activity and whether it eliminates the mortality risk associated with poor sleep, um, which I thought was interesting. I think there's probably more research needs to be done around this, but as a as someone who doesn't get a massive amount of sleep myself, I was quite pleased to see that. And that's my tweets. 56.4. <laughs> that might be a personal best. Yeah. What was well, um? What did he have on? Ons was he? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there were fifty mil, I think. Yeah. What's the limit? I thought it was sixty mil is the legal Four, limit. Forty is the limit. Oh, is it? Oh. In, yeah, according to World Athletics, but World Triathlon said that, uh, that there's no rules around shoes. So. The interesting thing with that one is it sort of went under the radar and it's popped up. Like 10 days post-race, people seem to be going on about that. No one really mentioned it over the weekend. Yeah, I think it's because uh, there was a delay in them uh, stating their position on it. So there's a few photos came out immediately afterwards of the shoe. But um, I don't think that generated that much media interest. But um, once World Triathlon then confirmed that there's no rules around it, I think that was what sort of reignited the debate. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one because uh, shoe companies could potentially start creating shoes that are specific for triathlon because of that. Um, I mean, there are one or two that are that's an, um, Nike already have a shoe that's outside the limit, and so do uh, Adidas. Now Nike's is more of a training shoe, but Adidas have one that is a performance shoe, and actually an elite athlete won Seville in them, and then he had it taken away from him when they realised afterwards he'd won that shoe. Um, so they're not the first company to produce them, but um, they're probably the most extreme, I think, at 50 mil. Cool. Mm-hmm. Right. You're good to go, Mark? Yeah, yeah, I've not really got a lot to... I'm, I've not been on Twitter much, so I'm just... Yeah, go on. We'll have a go. We'll have a go. Right. I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. So my first tweet is actually similar to Ian's. The guy who was the uh, first lad who had Down syndrome can... Uh, complete Kona. I think he was the first lad this year to complete an Ironman full stop and then went to Kona. I mean, Chris Nikic, I think is how I pronounce his name. And they did actually put a tweet out via the Lakeland 100 Twitter account saying to him if he ever wants to do an ultra race, he should come to the Lake District and we'll give him a free entry and we'll pay for his hotel in Coniston. So if Chris, if you're listening, take up the challenge, mate. Come over to the UK. We'd love to have you over here. Um, other tweets as well are put out on the, through the Endurance Store Twitter account and through Lakeland 100. And we can talk about a bit more about this later, I guess, or at some point, is that we are actually doing a, and the three of us will be involved, just in case you didn't know, uh, running a free training programme this year on the Lake 100 Facebook page, which will take us through to July. So come and join the fun on that. And then my final tweet, uh, our Tri Kids project, where we're going to primary schools for free and deliver triathlon coaching. Uh, Last week, we hit the milestone of delivering to 36,000 primary school children. That's me done. Wow. Do you know what? 
you were smack on for a minute until your generosity kicked in and you started inviting people to free hotels and races. <laughs> you ended up with a minute seven. Oh, I'll have that. Yeah, it's not bad. I'll have that. It's good for me, that. It's all about doing the best you can, not just about winning. Right. Yeah. It's a team sport. I think if you added our three up to, together there, that's probably the best we've ever done. And actually, me being slightly under and Mark being slightly over, we must be pretty close to a minute average across the three yeah. of us. Yeah. That's, that's good. We'll take that. Team victory. Well done. I, always, I often sit here thinking, does anyone who listens, are they sitting there timing our tweets of the week to check it? Check us, yeah. Yeah. Try that from next week. So, Kona. Let's go back to Kona. That'd be a good one to start our yep. conversation. What were your thoughts there, Mike? Well, again, dust is settled, and it's quite nice to talk about it later. So everybody who's talked about it on podcasts and, and stuff so far picks the race apart and talks tactics and performances. But now the dust is settled, I look back at the, the bigger picture things, and it's more the things like the general acceptance of how fast people are going these days. You know, we haven't batted an eyelid that so many people went sub eight, sub nine. We haven't batted an eyelid at, you know, the speed you now need to run to win the marathon, the marathon phase of it to make the, the overall positions. So um, so it's it's one, my big take home is one, just the, the performance level across the board. And two, just how desensitized as, as an audience we've become at how amazing these athletes are. Yeah, I think my other final one, which would just be the the top guys and girls these days, the range they have to be able to perform at such a level from Olympic up to Ironman distance and everything in between. They just they just seem to flick a switch and be able to transition to, to different events seamlessly these days. Yeah, 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 incredible. Like I, said, I guess, with, like we said, with the range, to have that speed but to have that endurance as well where you can switch between between the two is incredible. It's like, you know, winning the Olympic marathon and then switching and going winning the 1,500 metres, isn't it? You know? <laughs> and it's, it's fascinating how they must plan their seasons mm. because with such an options list on their table these days, mm. now they're suddenly, you know, well, well how do I, what am I going to target? How am I going to transition from one to the next? What's my recovery going to look like between them? Is my training going to switch? Am I going to stick to the same sort of training approach and just know that I've got that athletic ability to just go longer or shorter on a given day? Yeah, but I think that was one of the conversations you always had when Alistair Brownlee switched to Ironman is that they were doing such a high volume of training anyway for sprint and standard distance. You know, their training plan in general was always consisted of very high volume, that it was never going to be that difficult to jump across to to Ironman, and I think that's probably the case with, uh, you know, with um, Blumenfeld and with Gustav Eden. The, the volume they're doing is so high, even when they're training for sprint and standard, that it actually isn't that much of a step up, you know. But I know, uh, Ian, you can probably remember uh, the time when um, Jan Fredino went under eight hours for the first time at Roth, and everybody was amazed that someone had broke eight hours, and now it's uh, it'd get you nowhere. Yeah, top, just about top 10, I think, wouldn't it, in, in Kona? Yeah. It's Incredible. just a... but yeah, Because it's not just the run, is it? They're doing it like the, there's about seven or eight people went under the bike record as well. Yeah. Um, so the, the bike course record's getting taken down and then they're getting off the bike and there's eight people running a sub, three, sub, was it, sub 250. Um Two or three of them under 240. It's uh, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, we noticed that uh, Cameron Worth, who's who held a bike course record previously, hasn't he? He um he said that he pushed his best ever power. Yeah. Nowhere near them. So it's all fine to say, oh, it's just tech and it's aerodynamics and it's everything else. But obviously, Cam Worth has access to just the same tech and he's a rides for Ineos, so he's just got yeah. access to the same tech as everyone else and wind tunnel testing, whatever you know, whatever you want to throw into that mix and pushes his best ever power whilst being tacked up and he, still it's nowhere near them. He was a cyclist, wasn't he? And he, uh, it's, he switched back to cycling. He said when he went back to cycling, it, it, everything had moved on. He was yeah. quoted after Kona. And then he said, when, now he's gone back to triathlon, everything's moved on again. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah right. you, you move sports and uh, you come back five years later and the, the game's changed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's not just down to the tech, is it? They're, um, they're obviously 
doing something in the training. Probably nutrition as well, I think, is one area that seemed uh, the, the amounts of carbs that people are able to ingest. That's one thing that this year that's probably surprised me so much when you see some of the uh, the amounts that um, pro cyclists and triathlons are able to ingest and really focusing on that training the gut. That, yeah. is, that is a limiting factor and I, I, think, I suspect that's that's part of the explanation um, for why they can push these uh, high power for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. The old 60 grams per hour rule has gone out the window, hasn't it now? Oh, People yeah, you hear double that. Grams an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you mm. regularly hear double that. And what I've heard about the Norwegians is that there might be considerably above that as well. Right. Wow. Yeah. You only people to put weight on in an Ironman. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I, the other thing for me from Kona was uh, the different tactics. Uh, and obviously, Sam Laidlaw just made he made it such a good watch because he, the, yeah. by attacking on the bike and getting that six minutes and then running so well off the back of it, it, it wasn't just about the two Norwegians and which one of them was going to win. It was whether they were going to catch him. Yeah. Um, it just added another dam- dynamic to it, didn't it? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sam. It's, it's interesting because Sam Sam Laidlow is. Um, I remember racing against his his uncle and his dad, who were from Cumbria. Yeah. I say is his dad is his dad Colin. Uh, his uncle certainly Mark, isn't it? Mark Laidlow. I don't know if you remember those two, but they must be. I must be around fifty years of age now. I think because I think they were the same age as me, maybe a, a little bit older. But I remember racing them round the northwest years ago, many times. You were both really, really good age groupers. I think his dad uh, moved to France to start a triathlon coaching company, didn't he? Triathlon coaching company, yeah. training camps. Yeah, that's how I, what I remember. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And that's yeah, because he's got the uh, he hasn't got much of a French accent for a French no, athlete, has he? No. Let <laughs> <laughs> me see the interviews afterwards. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, uh, Mike. What else were you from Kona? Anything else that stood out? Um, usual stuff like the, um, the criticism of the commentary. They did such a good thing, I think, this this year, splitting the races, and it drew attention to, to the races really well. Um, but as always, there seems to be real sort of vitriol towards Ironman as a brand and their yeah. commentary and their sponsorship. And Twitter was awash, when it, with the old uh, sponsored comment, like the Morton Move comment and awesome. stuff like that. Um so that's been interesting to follow, not in a performance or, or physiology way, but just in a the the, the environment of, of Ironman and Kona seems to be something that just generates more and more negative press every year and sometimes detracts from us appreciating the performances. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess, but I mean, I, th- I suppose with Iron Man, it's always going to be that way, isn't it? That every, you know, everybody wants to is criticising them for being over commercial. But yeah, you're right. Getting as many sponsors' names in there as possible in every single comment, just to try and maximise it. And I think that's probably always it's always been part of Iron Man, hasn't it? And it's probably something that's never going to change, and is only going to get more intense. Yeah, it's been interesting. The so it was there was a lot of commentary online to the sponsors that were being mentioned as if like you can't honestly think this was a good idea mm. of your product associated with such sort of cheesy catchphrases and gimmicky sales pitches yeah so there was the criticism of Ironman for doing it but there was the criticism of the company to think you know where was your marketing department to think this was a, a sensible tactic to go down yeah yeah although as the saying goes no uh no press is bad press yeah. you know <laughs> if people are complaining about it on social media and lots of people are complaining about it it's out there all the time isn't it yeah. you know there's no such thing as bad press <laughs> i think if you're not and if you're not going to change it because it doesn't it doesn't appear that it's going to change it just kind of detracts from the enjoyment of yeah of following the event doesn't it um yeah, and it's probably, it maybe is just giving them exactly what they want. Like Mark says, it's yeah. it's giving them the the media attention and the coverage and the, the sponsors getting mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the race itself, it's you know, if for those that have been doing triathlon for a long time, we're chatting to Mike earlier and talking about this. You know, you go back to the days of 
Thomas Helregal and all those kind of people who would like smash the bike. And they were moderate standard swimmers. They would catch the lead swimmers, go past them on the bike, put a big time gap into them, run a 250 something marathon and have enough time off coming off the bike to, to win overall. And certainly, you know, people who were weaker runners in Olympic distance triathlon would move to Ironman because it, when I, you remember, when triathlon became non-draft, uh, became draft legal, you know, because obviously a um, sprint and standard distance racing way back, you weren't allowed to draft. And then they made it draft legal, the kind of racing you see today. And all the stronger cyclists moved to Ironman because they knew if they were weaker swimmers and weaker runners, they could still win Ironman races. And we had these people out on the highway on their own, breaking away on the bike and then running a 250 something. But now it's just, you have to be an Olympic distance front pack swimmer. You have to be fastest biker, you know, front pack biker and, and you know, a top runner as well. It's just the, the standard that's just, if you miss the, the first swim pack, this idea that, you know, the stronger bikers are going to get out of the swim three or four minutes back and then bike through to the front. Well, they've got no chance. And even if they do, you've got to run a 2.30 to win anyway. So it's just that, the, the, you know, the, seven, the, the standard has just moved so, so high now for Ironman. And like Mike said, it's just we've just accepted that that's really what it is now. Yeah, and I think that sort of classic um, performance for someone who's, uh, you know, a strong runner, a reasonable biker and, uh, and oh, reasonable. I mean, they're all excellent. But Joe Skipper came through the field to get fifth. It's a great performance. Uh, incredible run but it's not going to win you is it no. from that far back I mean he wasn't even top 15 I don't think uh, uh, on the bike for a long time you couldn't even see him on the the leaders but came through amazingly on the run so you can still get a really good place with a strong run but yeah. gotta, if you want to be in the on the podium the gap between him and then the next position was was huge it's like 10 minutes yeah yeah and when, when you got someone running a 236 you're not going to take another 10 minutes out of them that's yeah. just gonna happen is it yeah yeah i mean it, it took a long long time for mark allen's run course record to go and then patrick langer broke it and it you know any any he, he won because it seemed like it, it, i remember that year when patrick langer won it was you know all the strong swimmers then there was a pack on the bike and it just came down to the run and the fastest runner was patrick langer and took mark allen's run course record which has stood for many years and 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 you know that's what gave him the victory and that was quite outstanding. Well, now they're all running those times at the front end. You know, if you're not running that that kind of speed, and if you, you've got no chance at all. But well, what about the women's uh, winner, uh, Mike? I know you had a few things to say about that on Twitter. You, you're yeah, very- I, just, I just think I think that the the first thing that there's two things I always think about that one was what one the strength in depth, particularly like look at a team like BMC. Mm. So at the start of the week they lose Cat Matthews and they must be gutted. Mm. Then there's Chelsea Sodaro comes through and manages to win it 18 months after giving birth. Yeah. But from relatively nowhere, out of the blue, comes through with a performance like that. Um, but again, you know, that strength and depth and that acceptance level of the performances across the board is is both sides of that male and female fence. You know, it's it's equally as impressive that that the the level of performance and consistency and the strength and depth of that performance just just seems to be mind blowing on both sides, but I think I think she. Well, I I watched most of the, the race, and she just looked so confident in her tactics, in her plans. Looked like she trusted herself so much with what she was doing, and um, and had, had sort of unequivocal conviction. And you see that a lot in um, mums returning to pro levels afterwards, in in ultra races, in in everything. They just seem to have this focus extra focus you should say it's not like they didn't have it before but uh, yeah they just seem to go and get it don't they yeah yeah she's coached by Dan Plumes isn't she I think so yeah yeah I think she's coached by Dan he's in New Zealand now isn't he Dan Plumes is that right is he's, he's Australia or New Zealand I think it's New Zealand yeah I think he lectures out in New Zealand doesn't he because he was he was Leeds Bradford try originally wasn't he Ian it's your part of the country yeah yeah yeah, it's uh, slightly different weather now, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can remember. Is his dad Graham Plews? Graham Plews, is that right? I always remember his dad used to come over and race around the northwest as well. I used to see him quite a bit. And then obviously Dan moved out to New Zealand. Um, but um, yeah, because I'm always interested with Dan because he's, he's very um, 
he's the authority on fat burning, isn't he? And and kind of reducing carbohydrate in, intake. Because Dan Blues took the age group course record, was it a couple of years ago? He went and raced as an age grouper, didn't he? And he, he broke the age group course record, or he certainly was first age grouper to finish, I think. Maybe I've got, I've got the course record wrong. But he was first age grouper overall to finish a couple of years ago at, uh, at Kona. And um, yeah, and, and he's uh, obviously coaches quite a few athletes now, but he's very, very hot on this uh, um, reducing carbohydrate intake and maximising fat intake. So that's quite an interesting one as well. Yeah, I think some comments somewhere that um, with with uh, Chelsea, he'd been able to push it so far, but maybe not as far as the others, but that was part of the preparation. Okay. And also the interest in the heat climatization as well, he commented on about um, going to Kona. I think they went for a couple of weeks, like four weeks out and then came out of Kona and then went back into Kona again. So I think there's uh, you know some interesting conversations there as well. Yeah, well, it'd be interesting to see what the strategy is on the day, because obviously you can train the, the fat burning, but do you then rely on carbs in the event? You know, because obviously there's different schools of thought uh, on that. I would imagine that's probably the strategy. Um, yeah. I can't imagine going for a, a low carb strategy on the day, but um, yeah. I think it's, uh, well, I, I guess it, I mean, I don't know, but I guess it would be, I think he keeps plays his cards quite close to his chest, because, uh, but I guess it would be like you say, maximising fat usage, in training but on the day you'd have to take carbohydrate intake wouldn't you you know yeah. to keep carbs up but yeah but that's interesting because i sometimes think the whole fat burning thing was a real big trend in it and it's kind of died off a little bit now and you don't hear much about it and i i think you don't hear much about it because martin and other products and stuff like that like you said it's all about because you can take so much more carbohydrate now than you used to be able to so taking 60 grams an hour of carb was never enough yeah that's right so as a as a kind of alternative option let's train our bodies to utilize fat and then we don't need to use as much carbohydrate and therefore we don't run out of carbohydrate but the carbohydrate intakes are so high now that they're almost matching their energy usage mm, that's right so you know, if you're taking if you're taking 120 to 150 grams of carbohydrates an hour then you probably don't need to worry about fat burning mm. so it's interesting yeah. those shifts in the nutritional strategies and the nutritional products because it's advances in products as well i think and that allow people to do that how you hear little about you know you definitely hear less about the fat burning stuff don't you mike yeah i think yeah, I, do. I think yeah. i think the stuff on the um uh, on the products uh, you know when you look at the the research the, the evidence for like morton and so on being better and more digestible than other products it uh, overall there isn't that stronger evidence but mm. i think a lot of it is the the trainability of the gut is probably the people are working a lot more now um, obviously, when you just go into to the lab and you compare one product to another one, all you're doing is just looking at the, those specific products. But I think what people are doing a lot more now is training the ability to actually digest mm. more uh, and focusing on the individual. Um, yeah. Rather than, but obviously, anecdotally, people do feel as though there's a there's a benefit with the the Morton product. So yeah. maybe it's the fact that when people have used it for a long time. Maybe that is a product that you can you know, train the gut better with. I'm not aware of any research that's looked at that specifically. and would yeah. need much longer you know, piece of research to, to look at. Yeah. Mike? Thoughts yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of evidence now about the trainability of the gut. My understanding is, is you know, a, a lot of it is the adaptation to whatever product you're trying to have more than they're being specific you know everyone's got a favorite that they get on with compared to some of the other stuff and that may play a part but um but we always have to be very sort of cynical and skeptical that some of the products that seem to have the success is is also supported by a, a very clever marketing mm. campaign around it and stuff that may may influence us towards certain things more than others but not because they're actually better products Mm -hmm. so I just looked up Dan. He, he is New Zealand based. Um, Dan's a PhD um, exercise physiologist and does indeed hold, hold the age group record of 8 to 24 at Kona. Yeah. And, and if any listeners want to know more about Dan, he's done lots of podcasts, but his website is enduriq.com. Yeah. Definitely worth reading a little bit on there if you, if you wanted to find out more about the type of stuff he does. Yeah, they do. Um... Is there a, a podcast, isn't it, The Prof and Plues or something like that? And I've listened to that a few times and that Endure IQ read stuff on there and it's really good, really informative, yeah, it's really interesting. Articles. Yeah. Guest on a lot. I think, I'm sure, I'm, I wouldn't, 
guarantee it because I'm not looking it up, but I'm sure there used to be an India with IQ podcast as well. Right. Themselves, whether that's gone now and it's a, it was something else replaced it, I don't know. I always remember actually we we organised obviously through a Epic Events, plug there for Epic Events, our events that company. We organised a triathlon over on the Wirral, just under the side of Liverpool. And it was a little sprint triathlon at Wirral, at West Kirby Marina over on the Wirral. And Dan had come over, I think, to visit his dad and visit his family. And he entered that sprint race. And before the race, for a little bit of fun in the briefing, got all the, all the triathletes lined up and said, uh, right, we have a competition. Who's come the furthest to race here today in, uh, in on the Wirral? And the winner gets a prize, like it was a pair of swimming goggles or something like that. And people started shouting out, you know, Bradford, Birmingham. And then there was a voice at the back went, New Zealand. Absolutely killed it dead straight away. And I didn't realise at the time, and it was Dan, he'd come over and his dad was racing as well and he'd just come to do the race. I think he, he did win that day, as you would expect. <laughs> Little local sprint over in Liverpool. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was about, about six or seven years ago. He must have been over for a visit. But yeah, he was. I remember Dan Plews when um, when he was young as well. He was a very, very kind of around that era of Tony. He was one of the top tracks in the UK. And I uh, was very jealous of his hairstyle. had amazing hair and highlights. But uh, that's another story. Yeah. I, th- I think um, on that, though, just going back to sort of the people who take a sort of low-carb, high-fat approach to training, you know, one of the things to be aware of is that the research evidence tends to show that yeah, you can improve your ability to burn fat, but if you exclusively focus on that in your training, then you actually undermine your ability to to, um, to process and use carbs. And that's that's the balance that people are playing. And uh, when you look at the sort of real sort of leading lights around nutrition and what they recommend, they don't say don't do this, but you need to be doing it at specific times uh, with specific sessions that are geared towards it, but balancing it alongside still using carbs in other areas of your diet because if you don't then you can run the risk of um, undermining your ability to, to burn and process carbs which is certainly not something most people want, want to do. Yeah and I think the other thing to throw in there as well which people want to ignore to some extent is that when you look at metabolism so uh, it is very much related to exercise intensity and relative intensity as in relative to you so if you put someone on a ramp test in a, in a lab and you start them cycling very, very easy and then progressively build them up to maximal intensity. So, you know, make them add 20 watts every minute or something and make it harder and harder and harder and do a step test. What happens is at the start of the test, when they're pedaling easy, they're burning more fat. And as the test progresses, they burn less and less and less fat until they get to the point where they're only burning carbohydrates. So it's based on exercise intensity. And the fitter you are, the more that changes. So the reality is that someone who's quite unfit, even at very low intensities of exercise, will be burning a high percentage of carbohydrate potentially. If they are very aerobically fit, they will be burning much more fat and less carbohydrate and they're much more metabolically uh, economical, if you want to call it, whatever you want to call it. So I think, you know, there is a tendency here for people, perhaps we'll call it the silver bullet approach rather than going out and doing some mileage and actually doing the right training, I'll just change my diet, you know? And I think the, the, the fat burning diet for some people is a bit of a silver bullet and they need to stop worrying about that and go out and do the right kind of training and probably do a bit more training, get aerobically fit, and they'd probably find that the metabolism would sort itself out. Yeah, there's, there's definitely some truth in that. And it's, it's that last, Again, it sort of focus on those things that give you that last few percent rather yeah. than the one that give you that gives you the 90, 95 percent. And you're always going to lose out. You're always better to focus on the, yeah. the training, which is the 90, 95 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, so um, we're drifting off our Kona subject. What are the races? Big races. UTMB. That was a while ago now, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Mike, comments on UTMB? Mike's still there. He's muted. Oh, Mike, you're muted. Oh, sorry, sorry. I got we got workmen in the house and they're banging away, so I muted myself. Um, yeah, so UTMB I followed closely this year. I was coaching a couple of athletes for the OCC, so um, so was was invested in in following them, but also I was I was keen on watching Tom Evans's return post his injury problems. 
So um, deep dived a little bit more this year than I probably would. I think um, my take homes from it were very much just how um, the, the elite ultra and trail runners seem to be able to go again a lot sooner than maybe like an elite marathon road runner. And um, and obviously lots of reasons why that might be, but um, but ultimately just their ability to to perform. We get blown away by their um, performance levels and their times, but compared to an elite road runner, they're working at a far easier level and intensity per se. So um, couple that with the changes in terrain and other stuff over, over the hard yards of, of the road stuff was probably the reasons behind that. But to see the way that John A can just turn out another 100 a couple of weeks later after after winning a previous one before. Um, but what was what something that was brilliant, I, I would honestly go as far as to say it's probably the best coverage I've ever followed of a race. As far as they're tracking, they would have they had TV footage of every checkpoint, um, and um, the profiling of the race, the course profiling. When you follow the interactive maps, very very similar to um, the Tour de France TV coverage with the race profiles to really show the true gradient and terrain. That was that was a really it was a really well run event from that point of view. Interesting to see the the. Um, the general comments again about uh, the environmental issues of people traveling there and the, the carbon footprint of getting there and how certain people had attitudes towards that. But um, a fascinating week of racing. It's a long time to be there for most of them. Um, lot, lots of time to kill. And, and of the athletes that I know uh, that I coached who took part, very expensive week to be around as far as being there for that race period. Travel, the food expenses, the the thing that you know everything merchandise wise and, and so on is is an expensive event to be involved in mm. i guess well i mean we we spoke about this earlier didn't we that it's um the, the i suppose utmb model now is very similar to iron man isn't it because iron man part own utmb and they're in fact one company and you can see that the models kind of merging together really the similar approaches with uh, the utmb series of events qualifying for UTMB itself and Ironman events qualifying for Kona. You can see a lot of similarities there. Um, and some of it good, like you said, bringing that kind of, you know, the what part of commercialism is making it mass market and lots of people seeing it. And for that to happen, you have to have really good coverage and have great coverage, live coverage and footage. So there's a lot of benefits of that. Whether you want to look at the negative sides as well, there are some benefits and you've noted one there, which is the media coverage. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's just the the way that these guys and girls can tick off that distance and the consistency over that distance with with the obvious, you know, general fatigue, maybe not the muscular fatigue that you'd have in, in a shorter distance stuff, but to the concentration, Ian Ian will be able to delve deeper into this, but to concentrate on that terrain for that length of time at that level of performance is mind-blowing really well it's interesting that uh, you mentioned that like because uh there, there's obviously the big battle with killian jona and, and, and warmsley set up and they obviously did really sort of battle it out at the front but then when warmsley started to drop off i think killian jona's performance he did start to sort of drift didn't they and it was when he got caught that actually that allowed him to get his mind back on the race and to concentrate and lifted his motivation so uh, it's interesting to to see how someone else's performance actually sort of picked Killian Jornet's performance back up again. Um, so I thought the the tactics and the way the race ran, and obviously the coverage is so important in being able to observe this um, at the time. But um, it was fascinating, but in a different way to to Kona. I thought they both you know interesting in the way that the, the dynamics of the race, but. Yeah, there was one big battle set up and it, it, was, it was as if once he thought he had that one won, his performance was, you know, he was he was dropping off. But then when someone else stepped alongside him. So I think there's a lesson for us all in that, in that often, you know, we're 
we're perceiving our own levels of effort and how we're feeling at a time and we assume that's a reflection of how we're what we're capable of physically at the time but ultra races you know they're so long that we do go through dips uh, and we need to recognize that actually we can but there's probably still quite a lot more in the tank than we might perceive at any one time um, and sometimes it's trying to find those things that can sort of bring that out of ourselves and sometimes it's other other athletes but other times it might be what your motives for the race are or what your objectives and goals for the race that you've set um, within the race or some of the psychological strategies you might have prepared beforehand to try and cope with that but um, the one thing that was similar I thought to uh, to, to Kona in some ways was Tom, Tom Evans' performance. You mentioned Tom Evans, Mike, and he came through to third, didn't he? But I think he was still quite, in the same way with your skipper, uh, he, he was probably never going to be in contention for the win. But he came came back from you know, way back, probably well into the teens, I think, wasn't it, one time. And then he, he came back to, I think he was about half an hour off the, off the winner, but to, to get a podium, which was incredible, really. Um, and well, I've listened to a couple of podcasts with him, uh, and he is someone that attention to detail, absolutely unbelievable, probably to a level that I, I've never heard in an athlete before, you know, in terms of his preparation for every different aspect of his performance. Um, I don't know if that's something that you've, have you, I don't know if you've heard any of those, Mike, and got any thoughts on I, that? I have, yeah, and obviously Tom, like myself, ex-military. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Tom's career closely that way. It, I, I, it's someone I think we should really think of getting on here because obviously um, Sophie Caldwell is his fiance as well. So we've got the yeah. two of them there with, with, with the elite sport background that would be brilliant guests to have. Um, and I would imagine that his whole preparation is based off his past experiences of attention to detail. Yeah, uh, definitely. He talks about his military background and I think that feeds into the way that he just because he's always coming back from injury and surgery as well I think isn't he so um, he's been looking at ways that you know can um, change the, the way that he runs to, to protect himself from injury but his nutrition his uh, preparation for the uh, conditions every different aspects um, kit uh, and the kit that he's carrying and, um, and choosing the right kit and just everything seemed to be there was no stone left unturned um, which is impressive, and I think that's yeah, is reaping the rewards of that. I think it was definitely um, there was definitely a trust in his plan that was evident. That you know, I know I probably won't be up the front, but I'll work my way up there. And he just seemed to have a very consistent trajectory through the field, as as you said, these others were maybe blowing up a little bit, dropping off and, and falling apart. He just seemed to just keep ticking them off. Although, as you said, you never thought he was actually going to catch the top two. Just thought, and I, I wonder, and, and I haven't heard a, a post, um, I haven't heard what is, is ultimate aim was, you might have, but I don't know what was podium in his only goal. Well, I, I don't know. Perhaps it was a, I think I can get third here and that's my challenge. Yeah, I got the feeling from the interviews I had was sort of thinking top five as a you know as a definite goal and and possibly podium. Um, I think it takes it. You've got to go out with a different approach if you if you're there for the win, haven't you? Yeah. I don't think you need to necessarily be right with them, but you need to be in touch all the time, don't you? Otherwise, the the gaps are just too big. Yeah. Um, Which is a really good example of that realistic, ambitious attitude. You know, you've yeah. got to set yourself a challenge that's, that's hard and you might miss it. But again, understanding what that challenge is, is realistically. Yeah, know. and obviously Wormsley goes back each year with the same tactics and never seems to work out at, at UTMB. But some people yeah, think that that's impressive and that he's just not backing away from that. But other people think that he should you know, rethink the strategy. It's interesting, but um, it it would be interesting to see him take a different approach one year to see how it works out but I don't get the feeling that we're going to see that no, I, I think it's tough because it's that glorious failure attitude that mm. it, it, it wins for him sometimes yeah so it must be hard then to think well why wouldn't it work on any given day but um, but again 
tr trust in the process, preparation for the race, understanding that maybe you need to do something different? Well, I think he'd committed more to it this year as well, hadn't he? Because he hadn't done Western States. He'd gone out there earlier. He'd been preparing uh, uh, in the area much earlier, I think, and more across the summer. So he committed more to it, but then it was the same tactics. So maybe it's the race that needs to be uh, looked at next. But the, uh, the the women's race was a completely different event, wasn't it? It was just basically someone going straight off the front and and dropping everyone early. Um, yeah, Katie Shard, wasn't it? Which um, was impressive to see. That's again someone that just needs to have just like ultimate belief in what you're doing, I guess. So it does it does work out sometimes, and I think that's what continues to feed people who prefer that approach is that obviously it does work sometimes but um maybe not on that terrain maybe that's the thing yeah in the men's mm. interesting going back to the comments you made about volume earlier on though because like um killing john is i kind of said an article a couple of weeks before utmb and think i read and he was talking about how he has this like really high volume and generally quite often doesn't even taper you know, and he likes going into it off the back of high volume. Um, yeah. And then, of course, you you see this stuff like out in Kona with um, Blumenfeld and Eden in the kind of the, the weekend before Kona, the, they're doing 25 mile training runs. And they, they again, they openly said, and there was, I think it was um, that triathlon network YouTube channel or something. They were talking on there and they were talking about how they do such high volume all year round. And at the weekend before, it's just normal for them. So it's there isn't that much of a taper off because to them that's just it's just normal you know that, that, that a 25 mile training run isn't really much and again just showing that approach of people just just that resilience and having that huge base being able to do that big mileage that you're not even needing to taper off that much and um, you know that's uh, fascinating isn't it that and I guess we've always known that a lot of the top runners and cyclists always do big volume. But yet again, demonstrated, you know, people saying that they're hardly even tapering off because it's just another day, basically. Big volume and sometimes quite, you know, short events in plus. So um, obviously, um, Jean had done a, another 100 early in the summer and, and, and won it. But he did Cien Zanal only, uh, was it a week before? I think it was the weekend before. Yeah. Um, I think he came third or fourth, a much shorter race. But... You know, doing something like incredibly intense, which seems like a, you know, is different demands on the on the body, isn't it? And you, it would be different preparations if that was your target. But um, I, I think it sort of, I think it epitomizes the fact that he talks about he, he he really is sort of intrinsically motivated and just enjoys the sport, and he doesn't let the fact that that might not have been the most optimal approach to stop him doing it he still does it because that that's what motivates him and that's what he wants to do because i don't think he was i don't think he made the argument that that was the optimal way of leading into utmb for him it was because that's a, their events that he loves doing and he wanted to do it mm. so he did it um which at that level is is really impressive isn't it because um there's obviously incredible pressures on them to perform um in these big events yeah it's probably a way that he manages to sort of dissipate that that pressure because he's demonstrating that it, it, it's more to it to him than that yeah yeah mm. um what else has been going on? it's also that sort of um it, it's the inverse thing of positive mentality I, I follow a lot of the nfl and there's a player being interviewed this week and and they all know that it's a very sort of erosive sort of you know real sort of tough season where you're likely to just get worse and worse and more impact in yeah. every week on week and this guy was like oh i embrace it i know that the first game of the season is going to be the freshest i'll ever be and then it's an attrition for the rest of the season but i love it mm. and i thought you know you're probably going to be handling those performance deficits and, and the potential going into each game far better than someone goes oh, crap, that's another knock, oh, that's another one, oh, I've got eight games left, rather than thriving in that. So, again, if you if you can tip that into a... Because um, most people, I think, with the endurance world, it's the, 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 the mentality that's pushed on people is the negative effects of doing something. Or oh, you don't want to run that far a week before the race, you're not yeah. going to recover from that. 
But actually, physically, you might recover more than you realise. But you just sort of are already getting led down the garden path of, well, I won't be able to perform next week. And then you turn up Wednesday of race week going, oh, I do feel stiffer than I wanted to. You might not feel that stiff, but I feel stiffer than I wanted to. And then you line up on the start line going, I can't do this. I'm going to have to take it easier or I'll back off at a certain point. So I think sometimes that just that positive attitude of, you know, yeah, well, you know, not everyone could turn up and run 25 miles a week before an Ironman. Obviously, that's a that's a, an individual thing to that level of athlete. But I think sometimes, yeah, if it feels right and it's intuitive, I just feel better doing this. As long as you're not absolutely emptying the tank, then it's probably not a bad thing for, for some athletes. Mm, yeah, I want to race in an age group Ironman over the last kind of, you know, looking back over the last 10 years. I'd regularly do a 100-mile ride the Sunday before, ride over 100 miles. It just kind of, for, for me, psychologically, it was just another Sunday. You know, the idea of kind of tapering down and, God, it's like three or four weeks since I've ridden this distance on, you know, since from race day. So I'd quite happily go and ride 100-plus miles the Sunday before. And, and in the race, it just felt like any other Sunday, you know. And I, I think that, but then I guess you've got to build up to that kind of volume. And running maybe was a bit more damaging. But, but yeah, I, I, I think that's a... With a lot of those top guys now, that's that's what they're doing, isn't it? They're just doing it week in, week out, and it is any other Sunday. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, what else has been happening? Other things. Hour record. Do you want to talk about the hour record in cycling? Gannon smashing the hour record? Yeah, well, it was, again, it was the performance for the hour record, but then to transition straight into a, a week later and be the first person that... Um, sea level to go sub four in the individual pursuit so again that crossover of ability of 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 having that range having that confidence having the belief to try different things yeah. but obviously setting the physio if you've got that you mention it all the time mark about you can't try and run at a certain speed if you haven't built a base up at another speed you can't yeah. transition your 10k if you can't run this speed for 5k and so on so on so so again there you'd sort of suggest that Having that amazing base to be able to do that for an hour is probably the foundation that's allowed him to crank it up even more for the much shorter distance. Yeah, if he's if he's pushing four thirty, four forty watts or whatever for the hour, which is what they reckon he probably was, then that's not a low amount of power, is it? So your top end's got to be right up there to make that feel as though it's you know at a level that you can do it for an hour. Yeah. Um, and he just demonstrated that. You know, a lot of people talked about him coming away from that and, you know, being fatigued, but it didn't have that, you know, when he came to the, the wells, but there was no evidence of that at all, was there? Yeah, yeah. And and uh, we were saying earlier, the first um, first rider to beat. So when yeah. Chris Boardman broke, think back now, the history of the hour record. 96 he did that, didn't he, in the Superman? Yeah, Chris Boardman, 1996, a Superman position. But then didn't the hour record go a bit after that? Didn't they change it and say, oh, now it's going to be a standard bicycle? In 2000, he had to take yeah. on Merckx's record using a, a, the same bike. So yeah. there's actually a really good documentary on that, the final hour, because it was the last thing of his career. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he did it by something like 80 metres. It was really down, down to the wire. Yeah. Um, obviously, he had some quite serious health problems at the time but managed to sort of hold it out there but then the UCI changed their position on that uh, and said that they, they wouldn't so they outlawed the Superman position but they allowed other aerodynamic positions so you didn't have to be on a standard Eddie Merckx bike anymore but you couldn't go back to the Superman position so I guess the, a lot of the debate now and the question now is how much you know a £75,000 3D printed bike has sort of closed that gap now in the position that he's getting in. And when you look at the down tube uh, and his seat tube were um, tapered in a way that it was helping with the aerodynamics, something that obviously wasn't there for the Superman position. How much has that gap been closed now? And what is the difference between that performance physiologically? We'll prob- I would imagine both camps have the data, but whether we'll actually see those data compared so we'll ever know that. But I, I suspect that those performances are maybe not that far apart because I think 96 was the absolute height of Boardman's career in terms of physical prowess. And when you look at his other uh, other results. Um, so I, I don't think that, I mean, I suspect Ghana's numbers were higher, but I don't think they were probably that far apart. Yeah. Um, 
because there's, there's obviously lots of other ways in which they've been able to uh, to close that gap on that on that aerodynamic position. Yeah, but I mean everything in the clothing materials and yeah, everything, hasn't it? It's more aerodynamic now. It's incredible, really. You think back with it that that record by Boardman, that's the first time it's been broken. As you know, there's tech. It shows you just how good that record was in '96, doesn't it? 26 years, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it probably not got enough coverage, you know, since that how amazing that was because everyone's just put it down to that position that he was in, but yeah, uh, it was still incredible. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, what else have we had? God, I tell you what, it's been a long time since our podcast. We're recapping everything. We'll talk about Kipchoge. Yeah, we've obviously yeah. had uh, Berlin, Chicago, and London. Yeah. Um, London was of note for me from London was our previous guest, Phil Sessiman. Yeah. Managed to grab a tenth overall. Yeah, second Brit this time, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. And his dog, uh, dog won Berlin. And his, uh, and PB'd. I think he did, uh, he took 20, 30 seconds off his PB as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, 212, I think he did, didn't he? Um, yeah. So, yeah. But, um, and obviously then, yeah, Kipchoge turns up and does what he does. Berlin seems to Berlin. be the perfect course and perfect race for him, doesn't it? Yeah, I think there's, uh, I mean, that that is one thing we're definitely seeing is that Berlin is is definitely the fastest course, isn't it? Um, London's he's run just under two or two, he's doing about two or two, I think, at London, hasn't he? Um, so there's probably probably about a minute in it, but yeah, the pacing was an interesting one. I think I mean he's a bit he's a bit non-committal when he's asked about this, but it did look as though he was going after the two hours because obviously he went through halfway. He probably went through halfway a little bit quick if he was going for that because general agreement that a slight negative split or an even split is the way to go and he was actually 10 20 seconds under wasn't he at halfway uh, under the hour which unbelievable because he win 99 percent of half marathons wouldn't it and he's still got another half to go but yeah I, I, he was actually in london wasn't he and he did some of the he was interviewed a couple of times on the bbc coverage and uh, someone did mention that he, he blew um, there, there was a possibility that he'd blown up and uh, he didn't deny it. So I think he was, you know, properly holding on at the end there uh, as his times was drifting out. But yeah, just, it, to, to be able to take 30 seconds off the world record when you haven't run the most optimal strategy, it's, yeah, it's impressive, isn't it? Yeah, that's still fairly handy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah and, and when you're running that speed, you have to run so much of it on your own as well because they just aren't the pacemakers that can stay with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. The other one of note that I made a note of was another previous guest, Dan Nash. Yeah. So Dan competed 50, in yeah. the European 50k champs, yeah. came seventh overall, and managed to get a team gold with GB. Yeah. Well, and uh, guests showing their skills. Yeah, and there's been some interesting conversations with Dan and one or two other people on uh, on Twitter about heart rate variability and, and using that as an indicator of recovery, um, which was interesting because some pe- yeah, people looking at um, whether you can use heart rate variability as an indicator of whether you're ready to go in another hard performance uh, and how quickly you've um, recovered from things. Um, and I think that is something that we'll see uh, obviously, it is something that like Garmin and Paul are using in watches now to indicate recovery. But I think it is something we'll see athletes using more and more in the coming years because I think the evidence for that and understanding of it and our ability to monitor it uh, and the availability of apps to do that is is increasing all the time. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it is an interesting person to follow, Dan, because obviously um, coming from a physiology background and using a lot of that to inform his training, um, yeah, it gives you a, a direct application of sports science with someone who's competing at an elite level, which is not something you see too often. Um, the super elite don't share their data very often, do they? So it's, you don't get that insight. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about the heart rate variability again. We're talking earlier on about Dan Plews, and you know, it, it, um, and. Uh, the fat metabolism and stuff like that. Well, that's his other specialist specialism, isn't it? Heart rate variability as well. So when you mentioned earlier, did that and your IQ website, that there's um, 
that's his, uh, yeah, that, he does a lot of work on, on heart rate variability as well. So no doubt he's been using that in training his athletes for Kona as well. The other great guy, if anyone's on Twitter, the other guy right now who's really doing some great stuff around heart rate variability is Marco Altini. Yeah, he's, he's that's right. Altini underscore Marco. Um, so he has an app, doesn't he? He has yeah, an he's app. got an app, and I yeah. think he's just done an episode with Ross Tucker on the Science of Sport podcast. But um, but he's doing some and sharing some great insights around heart rate variability. Yeah, I think it's one for our, definitely for our listeners to to look into if it's something that they've not heard about before to do some reading around that because I think there's something that can help us in terms of because that it's a, always a big question for endurance athletes. When am I ready to to go you know, long again or to to do another hard session? Um, or to race again, and I think this is going to be a, a, a useful tool for a lot of people. Mm. I think so. I think certainly as people have dived down that metrics rabbit hole, I'm certainly hearing and seeing more recreational athletes now trying to climb their way back out a little bit as if, well, there's too much data here. Which data should I be really focusing on? That would be what's rising up to the priority list that I would suggest to most people is if you if you want to be metric-based, that's a really good thing to maybe spend your time and attention on yeah yeah and it's one that takes into account a lot of the sort of lifestyle factors that might influence your performance as well so it's not just looking at the effects of your training it's you know are you sleeping well have you got a lot of stress at work yeah you know, is family life um stressful and uh at this time and that that's something that's impacting the heart rate availability that gives you one metric that you can look at in terms of your sort of recovery status Good one to look into as we go into the winter ahead then. Yeah. Start planning for next year. And on that topic, I am going to pin you both down because um, I mentioned earlier in my tweets of the week that we are doing our training plan, working towards the Lakeland, 50, Lakeland 100 next year, which we've been posting in the Lakeland 100 group on Facebook rather than the actual on the page. Um and uh, we're, and and if even if people aren't training, I'm uh, just a relentless plug here. But even if people aren't um, training for Lakeland 50, Lakeland 100, on this free training plan, and I am going to try and get you to involve if that's all right. Yeah, that'd be great. I need the expertise, um, and uh, because um, it's basically just going to try and you know have a, a a good group community and follow the training all the way through to Lakeland 100, get as many people involved as possible. Um, have you both started your winter training plans yet? By the way, Mike, are you uh, any big goals for next year? So, are you doing anything at the moment? I'm ticking over right now. There is a very strong chance that the bike is coming back out next year. I might be coming back to try. Oh, I did see you post that on uh, Twitter. I, I, um, so I'm currently in the process of potentially starting a full time job lecturing in uni. Yeah. Which will make my already busy schedule even busier. And, yeah. And realistically sitting down looking at it, I'm not going to have the time to train for ultras next year. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm no interest in going short just in a run capacity, but I have had an itch for a while to get back into try. Mm. And um, and yeah, I wonder. I've not raced short course triathlon for over 10 years. Yeah. And as much as I'm obviously not the same athlete, part of me is like, I wonder how good I could be at this right now. Yeah. And maybe a six to ten hour training week would fit in really nicely with with the demands of that, and and spend a season or two playing around there and see where it goes. Yeah. Uh, Ian, are you is your winter training um, started or is it on a break? Uh, I'm on a little bit of a break, but more from uh, a health perspective. So I got COVID uh, at the beginning of this or just the end of September um, and that's taking a bit it's taking a bit of a getting over so I'm taking the opportunity to have sort of two or three weeks when the only running I'm doing is like the, the commute into work and back which is only a couple of miles each week just tick over and yep. then start start from November uh, is the plan for me and that'll be sort of the usual sort of London which is now moving back to the spring thankfully much much better for me when it's in April uh, then Lakeland but I'm also um, I'm 50 next year, so I would like another sort of big target. So I'm not sure what that is yet, but one of the possibilities I'm looking at is also a return to triathlon, uh, maybe doing an Ironman. Um, and it, because it'll also be 20 years since I did my last triathlon next year. So, um, 
yeah, that'd be that would fit quite nicely. So yeah, I'm considering there, that. There you go, Mike. We should we could all go to like we can go to like um Mallorca or something at the end of the year. Let's you know let's go and do a late, a late season yeah. game, man, and we'll go out and have a have a have a weekend away. That'd be good for me. That would, that would fit. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, <laughs> come and watch. <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. But no, I. But um, yeah. If you are um training for a ultra running for next year, then jump onto the Lakeland Hundred group because we're going to be doing some live uh live uh you know Q and A's and stuff on there as well, and uh and you know we're going to get that plan running all the way through to July next year, so you can jump on at any time and join in. Um. Well, I think that's it for today. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Mike? Uh, the only thing I would say to the listeners is that we often put this little sort of bat sign up and nobody really responds to it. But, um, you know, do, do let us know any topics you want us to talk about, any guests you want us to try and chase down. We're not short of ideas, but obviously we want it to be as relevant to the audience as possible. So, you know, if there's if there's things you want us to discuss or do a bit of, of studying on to, to inform you more on then you know comment when we share our links comment on our social media or, or whatever and, and um, we'll happily buy us an episode or a portion of an episode to, to answer those topics anything from you Ian? no just looking forward to uh yeah hopefully recording more frequently over the, the winter and helping people sort of prep for next year uh through the the cold winter months so uh, at least for those listening in the uk well should we maybe put down that the, the topic of our next podcast we'll get one done in the next couple of weeks and the next podcast for that very topic is um winter training yep sounds good super okay well i hope the weather is as good next time we chat as it is today but for now farewell thanks guys